I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Have you ever found yourself becoming discouraged as you look at the evil that is in the world around you? Do you wonder why God doesn't do something about it? Well, He does. Today we will be reading from the book of Nahum, a book that addresses this issue. When selecting a book of the Bible to preach from, preachers usually skip right past the book of Nahum. This is because Nahum is a book about God's judgment. It's a book filled with shocking violence and imagery and destruction. And people don't like to think of such things when they think of God. When they think of God, they want to think of Him as loving and kind. And He is. But while He's loving and kind, He is also just. And because He is just... He must punish sin. The book of Nahum is a warning to all people in all times for those who stand in opposition to Him that they will suffer His wrath and divine judgment. And this is why we must not skip past the book of Nahum. This is a message that everyone needs to hear. Today, as we go through our study, we will see that God punishes evil because He is a loving God. We will also see that those who belong to Him will experience victory in His judgment. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nahum, chapter 3. This morning, we are covering the final chapter in a three-part series on the book of Nahum. The book was written by Nahum of Elkosh, one of God's prophets, somewhere between 660 and 630 B.C. At this time, Assyria had risen to become a great power, ruling over much of the Near East, and the city of Nineveh was its capital. The Assyrians were a brutal people, known for their barbaric ways in which they treated those that they conquered. The northern kingdom of Israel had been totally destroyed by the Assyrians and the tribes of Israel had been taken into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah had made a treaty with Assyria and had accepted vassal status, which meant that they were under the authority and consequently the oppression 
of the Assyrians. It is important for us to understand that in the book of Nahum, while we see nations warring against nations, and we see men bringing vengeance on other men, the message of Nahum is not ultimately about a war between nations, but about God's vengeance against His enemies. This is the overarching theme of Nahum's message. While God is patient and often delays judgment, ultimately divine judgment comes for everyone, which means victory for those who belong to Him and wrath for those who don't. Nahum uses Hebrew poetry, chiastic structure, vivid imagery, figurative language, and powerful metaphors to deliver God's message to His listeners. He is speaking directly to Judah, and He's speaking to Nineveh indirectly. He speaks of God's unmatched power and ability to deliver His oppressed people no matter how powerful the enemy might appear to be. God's message is a message of hope for those who belong to Him, but it serves as a warning for His enemies. Although God is slow to anger, He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Because of His holiness and because of His loving nature, He will bring judgment to the wicked. In chapter 1, Nahum speaks of a jealous, avenging God who will unleash His vengeance on His enemies. He uses figurative language to illustrate God's great power and sovereignty over His creation. He explains that God is great in His judgment and salvation. In chapter 2, Nahum describes his vision of Babylon's attack and Nineveh's fall. His message brings both good and bad news. Bad news for the people of Nineveh because they will be utterly destroyed for their wickedness, but good news for God's people because their oppression under Nineveh will be lifted. In chapter 3, which is what we're covering this morning, Nahum gives the reasons for Nineveh's downfall and the outcome of God's judgment against them. He shows that God's judgment is just, that it is certain, and that the people of Nineveh will reap that which they have sown. And while their judgment is inevitable, so is the deliverance and rejoicing of God's people. While the book of Nahum is a message of gloom and doom for God's enemies, for God's people it is a message of vindication and deliverance from their oppressor. While God's vengeance on Nineveh may sound like an unfair act to some, the truth is that it is a loving act toward God's people because He delivers them from their wicked oppressor, and it is a just act by God to a wicked people who are deserving of God's judgment. And this brings me to my first point. Point number one, God's judgment is just. Look with me at the text beginning in verse one. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Nahum begins chapter 3 by pronouncing a woe on Nineveh. The word woe is unusual in our culture today. You may have 
heard the word used before, oh, woe is me. But people usually use that word to simply say that they're having a bad day or a bad week or month, maybe even a year. Something is just not going their way. But in Old Testament times, it was used to lament the dead. And that is how Nahum is using it here. It's a very serious word for the people of Nineveh. He is telling his listeners that Nineveh fate, Nineveh's fate is certain and that they will be destroyed. And he goes on to explain why God is going to destroy them. Nahum calls Nineveh the bloody city. It is a descriptive title that illustrates the way in which Ninevites treated those they came against. As you know, if, you, as, if you've been following this series, you know that the Ninevites were a brutal, barbaric people. And for those who are just joining us, to give you an idea of their brutality, the Islamic fundamentalist group ISIS, who terrorized the global community with beheadings, with kidnappings, and with setting people on fire, pale in comparison. They took pleasure in torturing and humiliating their victims. They would chop off heads and hands and feet, and they would skin people alive. Much more could be said about their brutality, but I will spare you the gory details. It's no wonder that Jonah, when commanded to go and preach repentance to Nineveh, went 25, or tried to go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. They had treated his people horribly. And though they did repent from their wickedness for a time, after Jonah preached repentance to them, they returned to their, to their wicked ways. Continuing in verse 1, Nahum explains that the people of Nineveh were deceptive. Assyrians were notorious, notorious for making promises that they had no intentions of keeping. They would promise their victims abundant prosperity, if the people would agree to submit to their authority and become vassal nations. But once the people accepted the treaty, Assyria would break their promise and bring severe oppression to the people. In verses 2 and 3, Nahum paints a vivid picture of Babylon's attack on the wicked city. Look with me at the text. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. You can almost hear the rumble of the horses' hooves beating against the earth as the Babylonians advance toward the city. You can see with your mind's eye the sun glaring off of the tips of the spears and the shiny metal of the swords can hear the crack of the whips. These sights and sounds would strike terror into the hearts of the Ninevites, and rightly so. The text tells us that when the Babylonians come against the city of Nineveh, they will leave utter devastation, the likes of which Assyria had never seen. It is the same type and same level of devastation Assyria had been bringing to its neighboring nations for decades. There would be so many bodies lying around that the Ninevites would stumble over them in their attempts to escape. 
Just to give you an idea of the bloodshed that the Babylonians would bring against the Ninevites, consider this. The population of Nineveh was believed to be about 300,000. So now imagine the number of dead that would be piled up in the city. In verse 4, Nahum reveals Nineveh's motives by depicting the wicked as a seductive prostitute. Look with me at verse 4. And offer the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Bloody Nineveh was a nation that had an insatiable lust for wealth and power. Like the enticing prostitute, Nineveh lured other nations into making unholy alliances with them. The Ninevites involved themselves in idol worship, sorcery, witchcraft, and occult practices. And because they had become so powerful, conquered nations were influenced by their success and were seduced by these practices and adopted them. They would corrupt the people with their influence. Sounds like someone we know, right? God's judgment of the wicked is not an unfair act, but a righteous one. Righteous is what is right. It's what is just. The two words are synonymous with one another. And this act is righteous because God is righteous. He is the standard for righteousness. God is holy and He is set apart. And He is the standard for what is good and for what is right. And He sits on His throne and He judges in righteousness. In the ninth Psalm, verses 7 and 8, we read this, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. And He judges the people with uprightness. To understand God's righteousness, we must first understand evil and sin. Evil is desiring that which is other than God. And sin is acting upon that evil, whether it is outwardly or inwardly. But I'll say this, it all starts inwardly. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you're guilty of committing adultery. And if you're angry at your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart and you are sinning. You're guilty of sin. Nineveh desired that which was other than God. Now it's important to note here that not all sins are as obvious as the ones that Nahum points out here. But listen to this, believers. All sins are just as bloody. All sins are just as bloody because they put Jesus, our Lord and Savior, on that cross at Calvary. Who or what do you desire? Do you desire God? Or do you desire other than God? Or do you try to get away with desiring both? Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And when referring to those who are with Him, He is referring to those who abide in Him and walk in obedience to God's Word. Are you with Him? My prayer for you is that you are. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read this, 
For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's say that again. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you given your life up and over to Christ? Are you with Him? Are you in Him? I pray that you are because judgment is coming for us all. And that brings me to my second point. Point number two. God's judgment is certain. Now I've broken this down into two sub-points. The first one, the wicked will reap that which they have sown. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God tells Nineveh through his prophet that their judgment is imminent. And they are about to reap a harvest from the seeds that they have sown. What they've been doing to others is what's about to happen to them. Nahum continues his imagery of depicting Nineveh as a harlot whose nakedness will be exposed to the nations and kingdoms that she has oppressed. The people that were left alive when Nineveh conquered a nation were stripped of their clothes and they were forced to walk naked into exile. Now Nineveh's nakedness would be exposed. God says He will throw filth at them, treat them with contempt, and make them a spectacle. These were just some of the punishments that were administered to those who were involved in prostitution in those times. Nineveh, like the harlot, is about to reap the reward of her wickedness. And those who once held Nineveh in high regard because of her size, power, and riches will shrink from her and will never again see her in the same way. And Nineveh will be destroyed and no one will grieve for her. My question to you this morning is, what seeds are you sowing? Does the seed that you are sowing honor God? Do you sow seeds from the wicked desires of an unrepentant heart? Or do you sow in obedience to God and His Word? God's Word teaches that we will reap a harvest from the seeds that we sow. In Galatians 6, 7 and 8, we read this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ask yourself this morning, what am I sowing? Am I sowing from unholy desires as the Ninevites were, or am I sowing from a desire to please God and live in accordance with His Word. The people of Nineveh had been sowing from their wickedness, and Nahum is telling them that they are about to reap a harvest from their labor. 
And with an illustration in irony, Nahum compares them to Thebes, a city that Assyria had destroyed just a few years earlier in 663 B.C. Look with me at verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Thebes was the capital city of Upper Egypt. It was planted by the Nile River, and it was surrounded by water, and it was controlled by Cush, and it had put in Libya as its allies. The city of Thebes was a great and powerful city, and it was in a great defensive position, and yet it fell to Assyria. And the Assyrians were merciless in their attack on Thebes. Their slaughter of infants at the head of every street was a highly visible and intentional act done in plain sight for everyone to see. They gambled to see who would take the city's leaders as their slaves, and then they carted them off in chains into exile. The people of Nineveh were wicked. There was no doubt that they must be destroyed, and they would be. Although they were at the peak of their might and power, like the great city of Thebes they had just taken a few years before, they too would fall. And the message of their fall would be heard throughout eternity. Wicked Nineveh would reap that which it had sown and there would be no escape from it. And this brings me to my second sub-point. Efforts to evade God's judgment are futile. Look with me at the text beginning in verse 11. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Like the weak drunkard, the people of Nineveh will, will be unable to defend against God's judgment. They will try to hide. They will try to avoid their fate but there is nowhere that they can go to hide from God's wrath. Nahum likens Nineveh's destruction to the ripe fig tree with its first harvest of figs. The figs are so ripe that the shaking tree releases its figs as they fall into the mouth of the eater. And so it will be for Nineveh as they move toward the harvest from that which they have sown. Like the ripe fig, Nineveh will fall with these into the figurative mouth of the Babylonians. Nineveh's troops will be as feeble women, unable to defend themselves, let alone the city. The city will be devoured by fire, and the bars that lock the gates will no longer hold back their attackers. Nineveh's gates will be flung wide open, and the Babylonians will advance without mercy. For Nineveh, there is no escaping God's judgment. In fact, no one can escape God's judgment. We read in 1 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due 
for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. According to God's word, everyone will be judged. We had no control over coming into this world, and we can't stop ourselves from going out. And God says on that day, we will be judged. Will you be ready on that day? I pray that you are. Nahum goes on here to mock Nineveh by calling them to alarm in a sarcastic way. He tells them to scramble to try to defend themselves. Look with me at verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Cities would often find themselves under siege for months, maybe even years. And they would make new mortar and bricks to repair the damaged walls so they could continue to keep the enemy from entering the city. But Nahum knows that their fate is sealed. Any attempt to avoid their fate would be an exercise in futility. Verse 15, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Fire and sword devour the city like locusts devour crops. Archaeologists have found fire was instrumental in the destruction of Nineveh's palaces. Multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. Nineveh was known for having many officials and leaders, but Nahum tells them in verse 17 that their leaders will abandon them when trouble comes. Likewise, they had greatly multiplied the number of their merchants. They had become wealthy by plundering other nations and did lots of trading inside the city walls, but there would be no place for these merchants now. They will fly away like the locust. Verses 16 and 17. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and fly away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. The grasshoppers and locusts would hide in the cracks of the walls when the temperatures were cold. And when the sun came out, it would warm their wings up and they would fly away. And this imagery depicts Nineveh's leaders abandoning their people when God's wrath comes. Again, these events are bad news for the people of Nineveh, but for those who Nineveh oppressed, this is really good news. And that brings me to my third and final point. Point number three. God's judgment brings vindication for the victims of the oppressor. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nahum now addresses the king of Nineveh. The leaders who were likened to locusts and grasshoppers are now compared to shepherds. With no shepherds to lead them, the people of Nineveh who remained scattered themselves throughout the mountains, to, throughout the nearby mountains. Nineveh's destruction is complete. The king of Nineveh no longer has a kingdom and there is no possibility 
of restoring it. Those who have suffered under the oppression of the wicked city rejoice. They have been delivered from their oppressor. God brings His righteous judgment on the wicked and it is a loving act. Because in it, the oppressed are delivered from their affliction. Throughout history, we have seen the existence of evil in our world. We see it in the curse on creation. We see it manifested in the wickedness of men. And where we see evil and wickedness, we see oppression, pain, and suffering. So why there is evil and oppression in the world? The good news is that God is sovereign and He sent His Son to overcome the world for us. And in Him we have victory. Jesus said this, He said, I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Earlier I asked you if you have given your life up and over to Christ. If you want victory over the oppressor, you must do this. If you haven't done this, then you don't receive the benefit that this verse speaks of. Remember, we read earlier a verse that told us that God will judge everyone. And those who don't have Christ as their personal Lord and Savior will suffer the same fate as Nineveh. They will suffer God's wrath and final judgment. This is you. My prayer for you today is that you will put your faith and trust and the redemptive work that Christ did on the cross. Jesus came in the flesh and He lived the perfect life. He laid it down willingly at the cross to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of those who will accept His free gift of salvation. By putting your faith and trust in Him, repenting from your sins and turning from them, not turning back to them as Nineveh did, but sincerely turning your heart toward God, and turning from your sins and committing your life to Christ, you will be saved. And Christ then imputes His righteousness onto you, and when God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness. You may think that your sin is too great for God to forgive, but I'm here to tell you that God knows what you've done. There's nothing done in secret, and yet He is offering you this gift of eternal life right now, here today. If you haven't received it, then do that today. My prayer for you is that you will. Let's pray together.